dreary Sunday morning, so welcome and thank you, thank you for being here. As been said earlier, if you're our guest, we're super excited that you would choose to worship with us here at Red Lane in person or online today. You know, on a day like this, it's a little hard to kind of get up and get going, and so this really is a good crowd for such a day, and there's probably a, quite a bit more online with us this morning as well, and so we're excited that you are here. I want to invite you, if you will, take your Bible and find your place in, uh, yes, Kids Church. I'm getting there. I really did forget. Uh, but go ahead and find your place in Revelation chapter 21. And as you're finding your place, send your kids to the back, three years through third grade. I was just ready to get, get ready and going. So uh, our kids are going to be dismissed to Kids Church now. That means my children. And uh, Mama's downstairs in the nursery. And so the rest of them are up here on the front row. But we're excited. You know, God's doing a lot of good things in our church these days. We have guests literally every week in our worship service. Many of them come to our 1030 service and uh, for their first time and then kind of venture elsewhere and kind of switch up, go to small groups. And then Lord's doing a lot of good things in our student ministry and our children's ministry. We're super excited about all of that and give God all the glory. Revelation 21 is where we're going to be this morning. Let me just let you know what we're going to be doing the next two Sundays. I told you a few weeks ago that we were going to end this series on the 25th. I have changed that as of this past Friday. We are going to end next Sunday, and here's the reason. So I really want to speak to, from a, just a pastoral standpoint to the election coming up. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. If you want to know that, I'll tell you after the service sometime. I'm half kidding there, obviously. Um, but I really do believe we need to, to speak and just look at what the Bible says about these opportunities we have as Christians and a nation. There's a lot at stake. And so I just want to speak prophetically about that, but not so much about the vote itself, but really, what does this nation need ultimately? And we know it's the gospel, we know it's Christ, we know it's believers living out their faith. So I'm going to speak to that issue on October 25th, two Sundays before uh, our national election and state elections and all of that. So we're going to finish, Lord willing, next Sunday, the book of Revelation. So what I've done today is I've taken what was going to be two messages, and I have combined them into one. And, and the reason I'm doing this is obviously because I do want to speak to the, uh, the issue coming up with our election and, and the Christian perspective of that. But also, chapter 21 and then the first five verses of chapter 22 coincide with one another. So we see the new heaven, new earth, as we're going to read in 21. And then we see new Jerusalem and, and it, a little bit more detail there. So we're going to deal with this large chunk of Scripture in one message this morning. I know when you hear two messages, you're, saying, you're thinking we're going to be here until 12 and then small groups. I promise you, it'll probably be more brief today than normal. And so um, let's look here in Revelation chapter 21 and talk about all things new. We love new things, right? We love new things. That's where you respond back and say, yes, Pastor, we love new things. We, we love to see old things turned into new things, right? A, a fresh coat of paint, a, a new uh, decor in the house, or a, a new look, new decorations. We like to take an old car, some of us guys, and, and restore that to, to its luster and its beauty of old. And, and so we love those sorts of things. And so television shows capture this, capture uh, um, uh, capitalize on this and uh, create shows that take this sort of idea and do just that, bring newness to something that's old. One of those shows is a show called Fixer Upper. It started in 2013. You, 
I'm sure have seen this show with Chip and Joanna Gaines. They launch it there in the spring of that year. And so what they do on this show is they take an old dilapidated house, something they found in, in, a, in an older neighborhood, something that's not very expensive because it needs a lot of work, and then they go with their new owners, the new purchasers, and they renovate that old dilapidated house, and they turn it into a potentially rich house and help revitalize neighborhoods throughout the central Texas area. And so when that show came on, it quickly became one of the most popular shows on TV and still is in its reruns. In fact, Chip and Joanna Gaines have uh, created a little empire down there in Waco, Texas. Many of you, if you've been to Texas and you went to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, you probably worked like Kara and I a couple years ago, went a day or so early so that you could just rent a car, drive the, what, 100 miles or so south to Waco and visit Magnolia, which is a lot of things, Magnolia Homes, Magnolia Restaurant. Magnolia Farm, all the things that the Gaines have. But if you've never done that, you've probably been influenced through Chip and Joanna's style, right? This farmhouse style. And so a lot of new homes will take it, that style, and, and build it into their, their uh, design. And then people who are remodeling do it. Um, so shiplap and exposed timbers and, and uh, old country sinks and barn doors, all of those things are the influence largely of Chip and Joanna gains. In fact, if you go to my house, we've, re- we've done some of this this summer. I just finished in September a whole month of Fridays working on shiplap. Can I get an amen? If you say amen, uh, I may come back there and just blister you because, man, that's a lot of work. I spent all this time ripping sheetrock out and hanging shiplap. I've learned a lot. Uh, I learned how to not do it. I mean, if you've ever done it, you've probably learned that as well. But it's been a big influence in our house. Now she wants more shiplap. She's not in here, so I can say all of this, and you guys won't tell her, right? She wants a barn door in, the, in our bedroom over our bathroom. And i got a lot of stuff still to come in our house, and so I'm just going to do it so you guys don't have to do it in your house. I'm not really a do-it-yourself guy. Um, I, like to, I like to pay someone else to do it if I can. I'm definitely not a connoisseur of these type of shows. But it really is amazing to watch something old, broken down, restored, and returned to life. That's a picture of what we get here at Revelation chapter 21, but on a much grander and more exquisite type of scale. So we're seeing here this recreation of the heavens and the earth. The old heaven as we know, the old earth, uh, we saw last week in verse 11 of chapter 20, has passed away. It fled from the presence of God. Now we're going to see this new heaven and this new earth created by God and enjoyed for the rest of eternity by the Lord and his people. Look with me, beginning in chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came, verse 7, one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign with him forever and ever. Amen? We're getting to the gooder part of the book of Revelation. I was talking with one of our ladies before the service about grammar. Sometimes grammar is good. Sometimes it's just better to say it in the wrong way because it sounds like it means more. Right? This is the gooder part of the book of Revelation. You know, as we've been walking through this, not only has the book of Revelation moved us to this point, it's been moving to this climax, but really the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is culminating right here in this moment. Ever since Adam and Eve, think about it, ever since they lost everything in paradise, lost their place there in Eden, and sin began to reign on this earth and reign in the lives of humanity. The divine plan has been prepared for this moment, 
to bring it to this moment where all evil would be put down and Jesus would reign supreme, where everything evil would be eradicated and removed from the earth. And the original purpose of God, that for which man was created, would actually be able to come to pass. You see, the goal of every stage of the apocalypse, as we've walked through this over the past 13 months, every stage that we've looked at, from the earthly woes of those seven churches to the three outpourings of judgment to the destruction of the great prostitute to the final events of this age, they've all been moving toward the new heaven and the new earth. Even in the reigning of believers during the millennial kingdom that we looked at last Sunday, all of that was just simply a a foretaste of what was to come. As Grant Osborne has pointed out in his commentary, he says merely, the, the millennium was merely a harbinger of the greater reality of the new Jerusalem. See, as wonderful as the millennial kingdom will be, like I told you last Sunday, it is temporary. You're still moving to what is permanent and eternal. It provides the foretaste of the greater glory awaiting us in this moment that we've read in these verses. We think about what the storyline of Scripture is all about, and we look at that in in contrast and overlapping what we see in Genesis there in chapters 1 and 2 in the creation of the universe, creation of humanity. We see there that if sin had not entered creation, then that would have been sufficient. That would have been good. That would have been uh, indicative of God's original purpose. But since, as Paul tells us, that creation is in bondage, there needs to be something to replace it. And here we see in Revelation, and what we looked at specifically last week in chapter 20, verse 11, what we see is the earth and the sky fled from the presence of the Lord, and it found no resting place. And so there was a judgment against the creation itself because of its corruption. It was destroyed so that it could be recreated. In this new heaven and in this new earth that we're reading and looking at this morning, what we find in here is the dichotomy that was present during this age of sin, the age that we live in, where there's a separation between that which is earthly and that which is heavenly, is going to be changed. God is now going to be dwelling with man, and man will be dwelling with God. And we discover right here in this final scene a reconstitution, if you will, of the Garden of Eden. God is making all things new and bringing it back to its original purpose. This divine plan of God culminates in this restored creation, and it finalizes the hopes of God's people. Everything the people of God have been hoping for and looking toward is now coming to fruition as they experience the reward from God for their faithfulness. And so this morning, I want us to look at five things about this new creation, these all things that will be made new. This will not be an exhaustive list. We could be here for a few more messages working through all the aspects of these 33 verses. But let me share with you five major things this morning as it it pertains to everything being made new in the new earth. Number one, the new earth will be a place and a people. That's what we're reading here is that this new earth that God's going to create will be a place as well as a people. 
You know, the vision John receives is a fulfillment. Everything that we've been working through and studying in this book has overtones and plays off what God has already spoken in his progressive revelation in the Old Testament and through the apostles in the New, through the Lord Jesus himself. And so this vision here is a fulfillment of what we see in Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, where God said there through Isaiah that he would make new heavens and a new earth. This particular new earth is going to be free of all evil. Think about that, free of all evil. I heard someone say that when they came in this morning, just kind of uh, talking about how evil this world is and how even with our voices we pronounce and, and flesh out this evil within our hearts. That will not be the case in the new earth. It will be a place free of all evil. And the reason for that is because the old earth with its sea is gone. Now, some of you, I understand that when you read through this, like we just read through it earlier, and you see there in verse 1 that the sea was no more, your heart breaks, right? You love the beach, you love the sand, you love the surf, you, you love the fish that come out of there. I mean, you're just a beach type of per, a person, but you live two and a half hours inland. You wish you had that place. One of our ladies is down in Myrtle Beach right now. She's living it up on the beach. She goes there all the time. So I know she's watching, so I'm giving her a little shout-out. There might be a day that that sea's no more. I don't know if that means ultimately, but this is what it refers to here. In the Bible, sea is, it, it, it speaks of and it symbolizes evil. And that's what it's doing here in the book of Revelation. And so when God gives John this vision and it shows him that the sea was no more, what he's saying is that in the new earth there will be no evil. There will be no corruption. There will be no sinfulness because all of that will be done away with. John sees this new creation coming down from heaven. It's the new Jerusalem. The city here is adorned with, and it's comprised of gold and jewels. It's going to be a, a wonderful place. John tells us it has a high wall with 12 gates, and the city is laid out in a cube. It's the same uh, length, lengthwise as it is width as it is in height, 1,500 miles roughly by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, which is large. I want you to think about how big this city is going to be, this place called the New Earth. It basically goes from the edge of Spain all the way to the Euphrates River. So the parameters or the edges of the Roman Empire is about the same length, the same width, and the same height of the New Jerusalem. It's going to be a huge area. Its cubic miles will be 3,375,000,000 cubic miles. I don't know how that thing's going to be laid out. I, I assume there's going to be layers. I don't know what all that's going to be. Here's the, one of the things we need to understand when it comes to the new earth and, and the new heavens. God doesn't give us all the details. He just gives us enough to whet our appetites. And here's the enough that we need. Jesus is going to be there, and there's not going to be evil. That there, right there is enough. Everything else is just gravy on the plate. You know that kind of southern acronym, that southern uh, statement there? It's gravy on top. tells us it descends from heaven. It's going to rest on a recreated earth. You know, throughout the Bible, the ultimate destiny of God's people is an earthly destiny. Here, here we talk about it like this a lot, and, and here, let me just kind of explain this. We talk about how we're passing through this life. We're passing through this world. This is not our home. This is not our place. We're looking to a city that has not been stained by sin. That's what we're longing for. Yes, we want to be in heaven, but in the new heavens and the new earth, when everything culminates, heaven comes to earth. 
We are an earthly people. God created us to dwell on earth. And so he will dwell here with us as well. I don't know what that means for the rest of the universe. God doesn't tell us those things. We don't know what that's going to look like. When it says there's not going to be a sun or moon, does that mean there's no astrological things out there? There's no more stars and planets and galaxies. I don't know about all of that. But we do know that heaven will be on earth. You know, the Greeks view the universe in two spheres. They, they viewed it from the earthly as well as the spiritual. And so in this dualism, humanity lived on earth during life, but the afterlife consisted of a spiritual uh, connotation, a spiritual state in eternity. You left the earthly to be in the spiritual, but that's not the perspective of the Bible. George Eldon Ladd tells us that the Bible's perspective places man on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. So this new earth, this new Jerusalem is a place, but it's also a people. It's a people. Here in verse 2, John sees it coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. Its gates are inscribed with a of Israel, and its foundations are inscribed with the names of the 12 apostles. And so what those two characteristics, those two categories mean for us is that it symbolizes the people of God. Heaven will be the people of God in a place here on earth recreated for us, past and present, Old Testament, New Testament, church age, those who come to Christ in the tribulation, all part of the people of God who place their faith in God through Christ. And so they comprise the temple of God, that place where God's presence resides. Verse 22, John explains that there's not going to be a temple in the city because the Lord God is the temple, and we also are part of this temple as we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So the new Jerusalem will be on a recreated new earth. It will also be the people of God living for all eternity with God in their midst. It's going to be a beautiful new Eden. Number two, the new earth will be free of everything unclean and anyone who does what is detestable. That's what John hears here from this vision. All sinners, in other words, all rebels, as we know, have already been cast into the lake of fire. There with the devil, there with the Antichrist, there with the false prophet and the demons of hell. All of them are in the lake of fire. That has already taken place in chapter 20. They've been cast away. So all that is accursed will be gone according to chapter 22, verse 3. Here in this new earth, there will be no tears. Think about that. No tears of suffering. I stood right here this past Monday and preached a funeral for a, a, a wonderful man in our church, and there were tears of suffering, tears of pain, tears of mourning and grief. That will not be the case in the new earth. There will be no disease and no sickness. This is the time for sickness, right? Everybody is concerned. Are you going to get the coronavirus? We probably all will come in contact with it at some point. And so, but we're still concerned about that. How sick are we going to be? How, how, how detrimental is it going to be? On top of that, there's other sicknesses. Flu is coming on and all of the other things. Cancer is always looming on the horizon for us. That will not be the case in the new earth. No disease, no sickness. There will also be no funerals, no doctor visits, no pathology reports. None of that will be present in the new earth. We're getting weather right now. Started yesterday morning. 
from Hurricane Delta. We've had so many hurricanes this year that we've went through the English alphabet. Now we're on to the Greek alphabet. And there will probably be more others coming in the next couple weeks. And so this is a pattern that happens every single year where weather comes in, whether it's storms or tornadoes or whatever, snowstorms, rainstorms, thunderstorms. And they're destructive at times, mudslides. Then when there's not rain, there's wildfires like there's taking place in California and other places out west. In the new earth, there will be no, no destructive weather patterns, no natural disasters, no wondering if this is going to be the, the day that the earthquake brings everything down around us. Hurricanes, wildfire, wildfires, all those will be a thing of the past. They will be a memory in our minds of a past life and a past earth. All of those debilitating effects of sin are part of this first earth with its corruption. But in the new earth, God's people will enjoy eternal blessedness in an intensified and an expanded Eden. This brings us to number three. The new earth will be exquisite. As we read through this passage here and we see how John views and, and he receives this vision, he uses the best language he has to describe it. And so he uses language like gold and jewels and, and precious stones and all of these things to try to give this, this picture of exquisiteness, of extreme beauty and glory. John here watches the new Jerusalem descend from heaven and he's absolutely captivated by the glory of God as it radiates out from it. Friday, I was at my house trying to catch up on some sermon preparation and some study, and I was sitting outside on our patio, and, and you, if you remember, the clouds were starting to thicken a little bit, not real thick clouds, but they were kind of just lightly uh, putting a film on the top of the, of the sky, and so the sun was still coming through, but enough moisture was up there that if you were looking up and you paid attention, there was a rainbow halo all the way around the sun. You don't always see that. It was pretty cool. I was just sitting there looking up and just kind of admiring the beauty and the radiance of God's glory there in the heavens. This is going to be such greater than all of that. His glory personifies God's character, especially his splendor. John Deere describes this radiance as jasper, clear as crystal in 2111. Jasper is often used to describe any opaque stone back in this time, any sort of opaque precious stone. The idea here is not crystal clear transparency. It's not like you're looking through a, a glass that is completely clear and transparent. That's not what John sees. It really speaks more of brilliance and shine, sparkle. For us men who've taken that plunge to get married, a good plunge, by the way. I don't want you to take that negatively. Uh, a wonderful plunge. But here's what you do when you go to get married. You save up a lot of money, and you go to the jeweler, and you learn about the four C's, cut, clarity, color, carrot, right? The four C's. It's been so long I forgot what those four C's are. But you want to know those things. So when you go and talk to the jeweler, and you're looking at these diamond stones, you know what to look for. You know what to understand so that you know how to purchase the right one. Here is John sees this come down, and he describes it as jasper. More than likely, he's looking at what could be a diamond of the greatest cut, of the greatest color, and of the greatest clarity, given the most glorious and stupendous uh, 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 Sparkle and shine imaginable. He also tells us the wall of the city is made of jasper. The city that it surrounds is, is made of gold. Unlike this temple of Solomon, this, temp, this city is going to be, no, 
going to be made of pure gold, gold that, that is transparent. It looks like glass gold. It's going to be so much greater than Solomon's temple was, and Solomon's temple was glorious. He made it of stone that was quarried in the mine, brought in without hammer or chisel, and put in place. Think about all the details that had to go into the construction of that temple so that there was never a sound in the temple when it was being made. Then he lined the inside of the walls with cedar and covered everything with gold. This city is not going to be covered with gold. It's going to be constructed of gold, made of pure gold, heavenly gold. It's going to be transparent, a transparent golden city with a street of gold running through it. He asked the question, what's the transparency all about? Best definition I came, came up with, or is, it's not mine, best definition I came, uh, read this week was the fact that even the heavenly gold isn't glorious enough in and of itself to reflect the glory of God. It has to be transparent so God's glory shines through it. Think about what this city's going to be. Exquisite, beautiful, remarkable, splendor everywhere can only radiate the glory of God shining through its transparency. Along with the gold and jasper, the city and its wall, the 12 foundations are adorned with every precious jewel imaginable. The 12 gates, each one of them are made of a single pearl. I'm thinking of how big that oyster had to be. Beautiful. It's going to have a mighty river running through it, lined with a fruit-bearing tree. See, in this new Jerusalem, the exquisiteness and the beauty of Eden, it will be intensified and it will be expanded beyond anything we could ever imagine. It will truly radiate the beauty and the majesty of Almighty God. This brings us to a fourth thing. The new earth will be marked by life. It will be marked by life. Think about that statement for a moment. What marks our lives today? Death. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You look at the cultures of the world today, even throughout history, what is the thing that marks us? Death. We war against each other. We murder one another. We kill our babies today in America. We are fighting as a culture today whether or not the person should be nominated to the Supreme Court, not based on something that's in the courts and being looked at and evaluated today. We're looking at it from the perspective of will this come up at some point, and if so, can we hold on to our culture of death? That's where we're at as a country. That will not be the new earth and the new heaven. It will be marked by life. It is the central theme that we see here in chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. This former earth is marked by death, and it's marked by death because of sin in our lives. The absence of evil and the presence of God marks this new earth with life, seen in the river and seen in the tree. If you remember back at Genesis there in the creation account, a river flowed through Eden. It flowed out of Eden into the rest of the earth, and it became four rivers, Genesis 2 tells us. In this new earth, the river is going to flow out of the throne of God. In the former earth, man was driven away from the tree of life, but in the new earth, God's people are invited to eat from the tree of life. It's going to be healing to the nations, it says. It's going to bear 12 kinds of fruit each month. This description of abundance and this description of a a variety emphasizes God's provision as always new and overwhelming, overwhelming abundance. It's overly adequate. Think about the needs that we have in our life. And every time you turn around, you're you're out of something. We just went grocery shopping. I picked it up yesterday. Guess what? This morning I realized I need deodorant. I'm out of deodorant. 
put on as much as I could. They're thinking, man, I hope he doesn't sweat up there today. It happens. It's marked by life. The leaves from the trees, John says, are for the healing of the nations. Now, as we read this, we're not to take that as speaking there will be a need for healing among the people of God there in heaven. That's not going to be the case. Well, how do we know that? It's because death and anything that's corrupt has been cast into the lake of fire already. Everything accursed, John sees here, will be gone, and the new has come. So here we, what we have is an imagery borrowed from the present state where John is living, from the present state in which we are living today, and it's used and carried over into the description of the eternal state. Healing leaves indicate the complete absence of physical and spiritual want. There will be no need in your life because God, who is the giver of life, reigns supreme. As Robert Mounts has said in the life, has said life in the new earth will be all, will be one of abundance and perfection. This brings us to our final point. The new earth will experience the presence of God. Listen, to Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Then 22 verses 3, 4, and 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I believe by framing these two visions with the centrality of the divine throne and the beauty of the new earth, what John is saying is that everything the city means to the saints, that is eternal life, that is abundant provisions, that is complete healing and absolute security, all of those things are made possible by the sovereign presence of God and the Lamb. We're seeing a a difference here. It's always been separated. God is on his throne and Jesus is kind of doing his own thing. Now the two are united. They've always been united, but in the description, we're given that. That Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. He's reigning and ruling with the Father. So in other words, in all of this, we see as wonderful as this heaven on earth will be, it is only heaven because God is there. You strip God from all that. You strip heaven of its beauty, of its abundance, and of its life. The greatest aspect of all eternity's blessings reflected right here in 22.4 is this. They will see his face. What have we been doing as Christians up until now? And what will, we do be, what will we be doing until this moment? Believing by faith. Faith, 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 faith. But there's going to be a day where it's no longer faith, it's sight. I think even as we've read through the Revelation, when you get these pictures of God in his glory in the heavens, he's always veiled by his glory. He's always veiled by by what John sees and the splendor of all that. John has not described his face yet. John has not said, I've seen God face to face as he's had these visions. He's been invited up into the throne room of heaven. But now in the new earth, God will show his face in a way he's never done before. Even Moses could not see his face when he desired to see the face of God. God told him, you can't do that. And so he held or hid him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand, the Bible says, as he passed by and allowed him to see his back. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, we read it yesterday morning, if you're reading through the Bible with us, that we are made by God, we're made for God. Our deepest longing, our deepest desires, our deepest uh, uh, um, 
cravings in life are for the Lord. Because in him and only in him do we find life and do we find satisfaction. Here, what we see in the new heaven and the new earth as we experience the presence of God is all of that comes to fruition. Life and satisfaction are found in him for all of eternity. All things are made new. Does that get you excited about heaven? That was terrible. Does that get you excited about heaven? He takes broken down pieces and recreates them. He does it in your life and he does it in my life. He does it even in the creation itself. He's going to recreate all of this. We love to see that lived out. That's why we watch Chip and Joanna's show. That's why we watch Fixer Upper and others like that. Their ability to take a Fixer Upper home and, and, and put a creation on it or put a plan to it and recreate it into something new and beautiful inspires us to go and do the same thing. The new earth and the new Jerusalem presented here in this passage are not presented to provide inspiration for a personal remodel of your life. They're provided to you so that you would look to God knowing that you can't recreate yourself. There's no fixer-upper type of do a DIY type of list to go and figure out, I need this, this, and this, and this, and then I'm going to be all right. No, you cannot do it, to, do it for yourself. Only God can recreate and he's going to do it in this earth, and he's going to do it in your life. How does that happen? It's when we turn to Jesus. It's when we turn to Jesus. Many of you are in relationship with Jesus. In this room, perhaps online with us this morning, you're in relationship with Jesus. There was a moment in your life where you understood the gospel. You understood that, what it says about your sinfulness and your separation from God, the judgment that you're under, and you came in faith to Jesus, and he's changed your life, and he's continuing to change your life. And so for us as believers, as we read this, it ought to call us and, and make us long for what God is going to give us one day, longing for him to continue to do his work, longing for the, a time and a place where all things will be made new and holy and righteous and death and its sinfulness and corruption will be put away with. It ought to call us to faithfulness. I love 21.7. It says, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. We want to be conquerors. Amen? Living faithfully, living uh, um, purposely, living on mission for the Lord, seeking to please him in every aspect of our life. And then he gives us a warning. This is not a place for the cowardly. In other words, it's, it's not a place for those who are Christian in name only. They give lip service to Jesus. Sure, I'm a believer, but their life gives no example of that whatsoever. That's not going to be a place for them. Nor is it going to be a place for the deceitful. What does he say here in verse 8? The faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. The place for them is the lake of fire. It is not the new heaven and the new earth. So this passage here, as we talk about all things being new, it calls us as Christians to, to lean into the Lord and pursue him with a hot heart and, and a faithful heart, longing for that day. For those not in relationship with Jesus, that us ought to open our eyes to the reality that this is not a home for us. It's a home for holy people, made righteous through Christ. But until you come to Christ through faith, through repentance, this is not your home. Your home, unfortunately... It's a lake of sulfur that's on fire for all of eternity. I don't say that to scare you, and yet I, I say that to scare you. Not scare you into salvation, 
but to open your eyes to help you understand that that is the reality for those who reject the Lord and continue to hold on to their sin, like we've read as we've gone through these judgments. People over and over again, in the face of the gospel being preached, thumbing their nose at the Lord, saying, I'm okay, I'll do it my own way. Entrance into the new earth comes through faith in the Lord. It comes through faith and repentance, believing the gospel. And when you do so, Paul tells us that all things pass and new things come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How does that happen in your life? Well, the good news is, I think you know this, God loves you. He wouldn't give us this word if he didn't love you. You're created for him, and he wants to be in relationship with you. The, re, the, the bad news is, is you're not in relationship with him if you've never come to Christ and turned from your sin. The bad news is that you're in condemnation, under the condemnation of your sin. You're headed to a devil's hell. You're headed to a lake of fire. But that doesn't have to be your destination. The great news of the gospel is, is that Jesus has already done for you what you cannot do for yourself. He put himself on the cross. He allowed himself to be nailed there. He took your sin upon himself, and he bore it in his body so that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin, to pay the penalty for that. When we turn to Jesus and say, I'm a sinner, I've done wrong. I am wrong. I am in rebellion as God. I deserve the judgment of God. But Jesus, I believe everything the Bible says about who you are, what you've done. And I faith into that. And I turn from my wickedness. And I trust you as Lord and Savior. The Bible says in that moment, you become a believer. And this is now your home. That's good news, right? That's good news. So wherever you're at this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, man, be spurred on to live holy with hot hearts for him. But if you're not a believer today, and just because your name's on a roll of a church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Just because you attend church regularly doesn't mean you're going to heaven. I remember hearing years and years ago, back when Billy Graham was still alive, him saying that his, in his opinion, 80% of the church was lost. I don't know if that number's correct, but it's probably close. It's probably close in a lot of places. And so where are you at this morning as a follower of Jesus? Are you all in with Christ? As a sinner... Do you want to be all in with Christ? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we long for the place that we've read about this morning. We long for the new heaven and new earth. We long for the day that we get to see your face in all of its glory. Lord, it's going to be a wonderful place. Streets of gold and fruit-bearing trees and just abundance like we've never known. Uh, That's going to be wonderful, but the only reason it's wonderful is because you're there. God, that means we want to be there pray, Lord, that you would help us as believers to have that heart day in and day out. We love you passionately. We love you fervently. We're allowing that love for you to seep down into our lives and and we're showing that love we love you by the way we live, by in obedience and faith. God, help us to lean into that even that much more this morning. Maybe placing upon our hearts something particular about our lives some area of sin, whatever it is, help us to be obedient. Give us ears to hear, as the Spirit said to those seven churches in Revelation 1 through 3. God, help us to hear what the Spirit says and respond in faith. Father, I pray for those who have no faith this morning. Paul would call them dead in their trespasses and sins. They're separated from God. They're headed to a devil's hell, but that doesn't have to be their destination. 
pray, Lord, even right now as I'm praying and they're hearing my voice, God, that the Spirit of God is, is speaking and drawing them to you. May today be the day of salvation for that man, for that woman, for that teenager, the child who's listening this morning may listen to this message in the coming days and weeks. God, draw us to a place of decision. in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing a couple stanzas. If you want to uh, respond, if you feel like the Lord's leading you to give your life to the Lord, I'm going to stand right here, and if you want to come up here, feel free to do so. Or you can respond electronically. Call the office. You can call me later today. Get a hold of one of our elders sitting in this room, small group leader. Don't leave here. Don't turn us off online until God has led you to make the decision He wants you to make this morning. Let's do that. Can you do that? All right. Let's see.